why don't you tell everybody how you fell on the ice last week? Oh my God. <laughs> Allie and I finished up recording. We had dinner together. And the last thing I feel like you said to me was, all right, like, like drive safe. Don't slip on the ice on the way out. And I got to the car and I always like bring my alcohol here. And Casey has been telling me recently that I should really like put my bag in the trunk when I go home, because if I get pulled over and it's in the trunk, then like whatever. So I was like, I'm going to be safe tonight. I'm going to put the alcohol in the trunk. <laughs> so I go around to the back of my car and I slip so fucking hard <laughs> and my bottles are everywhere. I am just on my back in your driveway and I just had to lay there for a couple of minutes. And there's just <laughs> liquor rolling around my just driveway. Glass <laughs> bottles. <laughs> no, I can't believe nothing broke. To be honest That's wonderful. with you. Yeah. It wasn't a SoCo situation like you had a couple no. years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that was so depressing. Um, <laughs> no, thankfully nothing broke. It was so just like you stole stuff everywhere. <laughs> That's it really was really upsetting. And then I, <laughs> I texted you and I was like, I absolutely just slept on ice in your fucking driveway. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was it made me laugh really hard because I didn't get it until much later after you sent it. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I don't want to blame your driveway, but my bag has been hurting this week. So <laughs> it might be my fault. It, it might, might be, be your fault. fault. It might be Christmas's fault. <laughs> the stress of Christmas. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is a very stressful holiday. Yeah. But um, um, but yeah, but be safe. Be safe on ice, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is mm. no joke. But we're not here to talk about ice. No, we're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women are non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, while you're listening, whether it be for the first time or the hundredth time, we are drinking the entire time. <laughs> and we are not historians yes please note those two things <laughs> <laughs> however we do our best and we find all the info we can on the ladies that you request and the ladies that we pick so that we can just really tell these women's stories in the best light possible mm-hmm. or sometimes the worst light possible depending oh who yeah they are. depending on who it is yeah we do some baddies <laughs> um well we got a new patron this week we did emily piet i think is how you say it and I she was so. our buzzard girl yes our buzzard girl came and found us thank you emily and we, we you're enjoying Georgia, just yes. like our other patron, Dr. Misty Benz. Yes, and my fiance's grandmother. Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a Georgia constituency. Well, next time I go to visit her in Georgia, I'll look you guys up. Georgia's a big state. It's very big. Uh, <laughs> I'll be in Noonan. I don't know how far away that is, but. Now it's a blue state, though, so that's, that's good. That's true. Good for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're all here for that. Casey's grandma did not help with that. Um, <laughs> Misty did. Misty did. <laughs> okay. Um, and we got a picture of your corgi. What a cute corgi. Oh and you're gosh. a Ravenclaw, so yes. you must be intelligent mm-hmm. if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> Wit beyond measure, my girl. Okay. So. Uh, you are busy though while you're oh listening to this podcast. You're adjusting your thermostat because the weather's just been wild all over this country. Unbelievable. You're and just- the world, really. It's climate change. Yep. Yeah. Things so are- <laughs> who knows what's happening, but surprisingly, there was ice outside for Katie yes, to slip on. Yes, it there was. <laughs> Not tonight though. Thankfully, it's gone. Um, but your thermostat's getting a workout. Um, so because your hands are busy and maybe cold, I don't know, you can't look up these women who we're talking about on your phone you can't you just can't so what we're gonna do for you is explain what they look like so you can have a visual picture in your head while we tell you their stories we're gonna get a little physical 
Physical. That's a good one. That was a really good one. <laughs> Felt mm. it. Mm. <laughs> Allie, who are you doing? What does she look like? I am doing Mary Sequel, who was a biracial Jamaican woman with a Scottish father. She had a wavy curl to her hair, which was parted in the middle and pulled back. She was described by some eyewitness accounts as being only a little brown. Because, you know, it's the 1800s okay. and that's how they mm-hmm. described people with a light complexion. Okay. Um, growing up as a young girl, she was in a British colony. So she's the, a member of the British Empire and dressed as such. She was considered in proper clothes, mid 1800 style clothing. She did, though, usually accent her clothes with something bright, either her scarf or maybe some jewelry. And she's noted for sometimes wearing a hat. The portraits and statues of Mary were crafted when she was a bit older in age. And in these, she looks proud, experienced, and important, wearing all the medals that she had earned. Ooh. So that's a little tidbit for okay. you. Okay, who are you doing? What does she look like? Okay, I am doing the incredible, the inspirational Joe March. Joe! <sighs> so she is tall, thin, and brown, reminiscent of a cult, for she never knew... <laughs> quite what to do with her long limbs which were very much in the way she had a decided mouth a comical nose and sharp gray eyes which appeared to see everything her long thick hair was her one beauty but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of the way she had big hands and feet and a flyaway look to her clothes and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it so that is her physical description from the book. Uh, but one thing I want to add is that Joe is also described as always having ink on her fingers from writing. And Joe's our first fictional this season, yeah. character of the season. Mm-hmm. And this is also a request. So I did a request last week. Mm-hmm. Katie's doing a request this week. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to that in a minute. But mm-hmm. I also want to point out... Louisa May Alcott was also a request, and we're not ignoring that. No. <laughs> Just this you, is a current request. Yeah, and I will bring a lot of Louisa's life into this, mm-hmm. but – just because you literally cannot tell their stories apart. Right. So I'm going to tell a little bit, but not get too much into her life. So that way that episode's not spoiled. Yeah. And we'll do her later. <laughs> yes. Don't worry. She's still on the list. Yeah. Cause she is fascinating. Uh-huh. Mm. Okay. Do you want right. to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks delicious. So this is called the other angel and it is a, something I took a, like a Crimean war era cocktail that Mm. I like mixed up some of the ingredients it has two pieces of lemon peel a pinch of sugar uh, a half of an ounce of dark Jamaican rum a half of an ounce of light Jamaican rum a half an ounce of cherry liqueur a half an ounce of lemon juice and it is topped with chilled champagne or in my case room temperature champagne (laughs) (laughs) perfect cheers Mm. Mm. it's delicious I love it I feel like I should be drinking this on like a tropical beach but it's not like an overtly tropical cocktail mm-hmm. which is why I like it there's not a lot of um pineapple and coconut like screaming from it uh-uh. but it's very like bubbly and light and mm-hmm. just airy and fun it just feels sunshiny it is not a Christmas cocktail no <laughs> um, this is an, an omen for the new year mm. uh okay so Katie what do you know about Mary Siegel Okay, so I know that she was Jamaican. I believe she lived in England, um, and she was like a wartime nurse. Mm. And she's like this very famous like healthcare worker that like won a bunch of medals. So uh-huh. I feel like it. And you said Crimean War, so I'm guessing it had. She's maybe like a wartime nurse. So, but that's really all I know is that she's this famous Jamaican nurse. 
people. Are you ready? I'm so ready. I want to know. For a roller coaster ride. <laughs> this is, it's so fun. And, you know, some weeks I like start out and I'm like really excited about research and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. Everything's going to be great. And this week I was just like, I was tired and Christmas was coming up. Yeah. And then like the more I got into it, I was like, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, so I'm very ready to tell this story and I hope you guys are ready to listen, but you don't have a choice once you've turned it on. So, <laughs> okay. Mary Jane Grant was born on the Island of Jamaica on November no. 23rd, <laughs> 1805. This Your is the first one. Twin. This is my first one on the <gasps> oh, podcast. We've had close. We've had close. But never. I'm still waiting for mine. I know. I could make up that Joe was born in October. Yeah, let's do it. She's <laughs> fictional. You can do whatever you want. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, she said in her autobiography, written much later, that the century and herself were young together and grew side by side. Because mm. she was born in 1805. So, mm -hmm. boop, they just grew up together. <laughs> she was a Creole, which is the term used to describe somebody who's racially neutral, but it refers to a child of Euro and African roots. Okay. Most Jamaican people of color were slaves for British masters at that time, but Mary, like her mother, was biracial and therefore was born free. Her father, James Grant, was a soldier of the British Army. He was from an old Scottish family, so her dad was a lieutenant in the British Army living in Jamaica. In Jamaica at this time, the lighter your skin, the higher your status was on the ladder of society. So she was very, very proud of her Scottish ancestry. Free people of color were, of course, not entirely free. They still couldn't vote and they couldn't be buried in the same graveyards and they had to pray at different pews at church. So, like, it's problematic, but she's definitely obviously not a slave. Mm -hmm. Of the occupations open... A lot of them were for whites only, but her mother, Mrs. Grant, I couldn't find her name on like a cursory mm -hmm. search. So Mrs. Grant was known as the doctress and ran a hotel open to British officers. The hotel was called Blundell Hall. The hotel was so popular because it had more than just lodging. Mary and her mother had knowledge of herbs in the region long before trained doctors knew anything about tropical illnesses. So the hotel doubled as a hospital for British officers. A British doctor who observed her mother and Mary working was very impressed and actually wrote a book about the particular treatments that they used and the herbs. And he analyzed them and he said, these are better than Western medicines for the tropics. Like this is going to fix these diseases that we don't understand yet, mm -hmm. such as cholera, yellow fever, dysentery, diarrhea, like things they didn't quite understand yet. Also, neonatal deaths were super common in England because at the time they were using things like mercury pills mm. and bleeding to treat the mothers. Oh my God. And Mary boasted in her autobiography that she never lost a mother or a baby using traditional medicine and of course cleanliness. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so Mary's mother passed this knowledge down to her and she would go around the hotel picking the brains of the British doctors that were there. One of the soldiers even ended up calling her contrary Mary because <laughs> she went around doing what she wanted, but she was learning British medicine and her mother's medicine Ooh, at the same time. I love exactly. that. 
So when she was young, she could not get enough of her mother's doctor work. So she started to use her mother's methods on her dollies. And she <laughs> said that her dolls would contract whatever the current illness was in Kingston. And then she would <laughs> treat them. And then when she had enough of her dolls, she started practicing on the dogs of the island. And feels really bad that she was shoving herbs down their throats now. <laughs> and then once the dogs and dolls has had enough, nobody would let her practice on humans. So she treated herself. Hmm. There we go. She's like Doc <laughs> McStuffins going around just helping the dolls. In 1821, she did visit and stay in London for a year. I think visiting relatives of her father's side of the family. Um, but she's definitely not accepted in London because of her skin color. Despite how light skinned and Scottish she was, it was just not cool at the time. But also it's weird that she's traveling back and forth unprotected or what we would call without a chaperone. And that mm. was seen as kind of scandalous for okay. women to be doing. Her autobiography during this time doesn't mention the abolition of slavery in Jamaica. It doesn't mention the important rebellions. It's not a history book, mm -hmm. but it does mention that Mary is bouncing around the different Caribbean islands and now and again working at her mother's hotel. But there was a change for people of color in 1830 in Jamaica. The government passed a law to make free people of color equal to whites. Whoa. So Mary was able to wed whomever <gasps> she wanted. And on November 10th, 1836, she married a white naval soldier from Essex, England, named Edwin Horatio Hamilton Seacole. Wow. Yeah. He was a, the admiral's godson, but probably his illegitimate son. Okay. <laughs> From another person. Um, together, they opened a store in Jamaica, and he gave his wife ample opportunity to practice her skills. Mm. But the store was unsuccessful, and she was again working at her mother's hotel slash hospital. For both, it may have been a marriage of convenience, though. He was sickly and needed a nurse, and she saw a well-off white man as a stepping stone into the elite. So she nursed him as long as she could, but he grew really ill and eventually died, leaving Aww. Mary a widow. So in the 1840s, other than becoming a widow, she suffered many tragedies. The family's inn was lost in a fire. <gasps> Her mother passed away. So she absorbs herself in work and um, is declining, apparently, many offers of marriage. But she becomes well-known among the British because she's treating them for cholera, which is killing 32,000 thousand people at this time oh my god in jamaica there's like a horrible cholera epidemic and she's the only one that's like really like pulling in the british officers to treat them this was um a setback though with her husband dead because she needed to now find her own way in the world as a woman of color who is also a widow so she began to look beyond jamaica and wanted to open her own hotel in panama so she goes she was very proud of being a biracial woman who saw herself as equal to whites. And the people in Jamaica were British citizens who, like, were stationed there long term. Mm -hmm. So they treated people of color with respect. But when she goes to Panama, these are, like, gold prospectors left over from the California gold rush. In Panama? Yeah. So it's huh. not going to be as fun okay. for her. But 
These men were also crawling with disease, (laughs) diseases of the tropics, to which she knew the medicine. So she goes around and gets ready to treat their illnesses. Next thing you know, this cholera outbreak gets really, really bad, and she can prove her skills. So, like I said, she goes around and collects all the medicine, and she's like, I'm not going to use any of the traditional stuff. Fuck that. It's not working. The simplest remedies are what are going to what are going to work if you're thirsty give them water with like some cinnamon or ginger in it yeah if you know they have cramps don't give them opium give them mustard seed rubs like help out with this naturally made laxative there are ways to fix this um but she would also suture wounds and treat fevers Mary felt that all patients were different and you needed to respond to each as such and a textbook cannot help you with that mm. So um, she was so confused by the British's like feeble ability to fight off these diseases that she even ends up doing an autopsy on a person who passed away and she gained considerable knowledge from it. She's like, I don't understand why I'm not catching this illness, but all of these people are catching it. Um, Side note, Ulysses S. Grant passes through Panama at this time and 132 of his men died. (gasps) Whoa. So I don't know. I felt like it was a good time to mention Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. He, he hasn't gotten a lot of spotlight on this podcast. No, he hasn't. No. We haven't done like too many women from like the Civil War era. So it's interesting that, I mean, we didn't plan this really, but that <laughs> they both, both are. of our stories <laughs> had to do with the Civil do War. Do we plan? Uh, no. no. <laughs> um, so she was considered a healer of classic African Caribbean traditions, which would give not only traditional medicine, but also advice and support and spiritual guidance as you would think of a healer. Hmm. But for the rest of this story, I'm going to refer to her as a doctor because she diagnosed people. She treated the sick and while developing and administering her own medicines that she made up, which is a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what she's doing. So I'm, I just want to be clear that she's not a doctor in the sense of like, I went to college and got a degree, but she's a doctor by nature of her activity. Okay. Anyway, she's in <laughs> Panama. <laughs> uh, and her treatments are working for cholera, but unfortunately her treatments did not work on racism. Oh, no. In her book, she talks about a specific time when she was confronted by racist men. Uh, And I'm going to talk about it now, but I'm paraphrasing both what they said and the response because it was just too much of a quote and too many words I didn't want to say. So a man stands up, maybe in a bar, maybe in like a thing, and he says, join me in a toast to Auntie Seacole. We can't do enough for her based on what she did for us. I calculate that you are as vexed as I am that she is not totally white, but I rejoice that she is many, many shades from entirely black. And I guess that if we could bleach her, (gasps) we would, and we would make her acceptable in any society as she deserves. Ew. That is like just so like backwards bullshit. That is like the 1800s equivalent of being like, no, of course I'm not racist. I have black friends. And it's like, of course I'm not racist. I just want her skin to be white. What? 
I just want to bleach her so we I can just respect her, her like she deserves. That is disgusting, right? Dis- I hate it. I hate that person. What the fuck? <laughs> to which she was like, nah, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. Um, she wanted to be called Miss Sequel, not anti-Sequel. And she wanted to be a woman of consequence regardless of her race. Mm. So in return, this is what she says. Paraphrased. I do not accept you with your respect to my complexion. If I was as dark as any other black person, I would be just as happy and as useful and as much respected by those whose respect I value. And as to bleaching me, even if it was practical, I would decline it with thanks. And to this society, judging by the specimens I've met here and elsewhere, I don't think I would lose much by excluding myself from it. There we go. Damn, girl. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. exactly. It. Well, because, yeah, that's like the whole other part of it is he's like, I mean, let's just thank God that she's not darker. And she's like, what? I would be the same exact person <laughs> if I was darker. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, use me. Oh, my God. Well, I'm glad she said something. Yeah. I feel like, you know, some people might be like, I'm not going to even bother with this fucking idiot. Like, and especially because she's so light skinned that like she really could pass with like having a white father right. and like. Not like pass as white, but she could deny as much of her black ancestry as she wanted, but she chose not to. Mm -hmm. And she spoke about her blackness with pride as she could have, which was really, really nice. She kept saying, look at me. Yeah. Like, this is who I am. So just briefly after this, the Crimean War is about to break out. And other than a two-day description in most American 10th grade classrooms, nobody knows what the Crimean War is because we don't cover it in America. Yep. Have no idea. We were were getting geared up for the American Civil War. So it's just not something. It was of no consequence to America. Just in general, there's the Ottoman Empire, the French, and the United Kingdoms, and they're joining up against Russia and there, it has a whole lot to do with where you can build Protestant and Catholic churches. And then the Russians like take down a Turkish ship and then Whoa. everybody joins up against Russia to be like, okay, Bah-bah! but it's not the cold Russia that we think about. It's not like icy. You remember the Sochi Olympics when like the ice ramps were melting because it's in the tropic part of Russia. <laughs> it's no. like that. <laughs> I ah. know that Russia is obviously fucking ginormous. Mm-hmm. And I know that the, I mean, the Romanovs had a summer palace in, um, Latvia, not yeah. Latvia. Um, shit, I used to know that name right off the top of my head. Lithuania. I think Estonia. Is it? Armenia. Um, <laughs> Ukraine. <laughs> Belarus. No, it's, it's something. It, <laughs> Latvia is a place. So. It is. I just, there was a very specific name for it. I can't think of it. But like, so I know that they had like yeah. Mediterranean kind of areas on yeah. water yeah they do and this is where it is it's on the coast of the black sea so okay. it's down pretty far south okay. that's there's like a peninsula you know how the black sea looks like a shoe sure the peninsula <laughs> a tennis shoe the peninsula at the top is like the crimean peninsula and that's where this war is taking place so it's like super duper tropical okay okay so the crimean war outbreaks in europe and she sees thousands of soldiers sent to Russia and she's hearing of this disaster and Mary is reading about men that she knows and treated in Jamaica like going to this war and losing their lives and she's like super worried about all these men that she's known since she was a child oh my goodness so there is 
a lot lacking in this battle against Russia. I don't know who the fuck planned it, but the soldiers didn't have like enough food or clothes or comfort or medicine. <laughs> so the casualties in this Crimean war is 23,000 people. Only 5,000 of them are from battle wounds. Everybody else is just from getting sick. Oh my God. Yeah. 18,000 people were killed from tropical diseases. And Mary's like, I'm qualified to fix this. Like, I should go and be a nurse there again. I want to clarify. She's a doctor. If the army wanted nurses, she thought, well, they'd be glad to take me. So in autumn of 1854, Mary gets on a boat and sets sail to England. It's going to take her 20 days to get there. At the same time, another extraordinary woman is sailing for Turkey on her own mission. She probably doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway because she sits up a British army hospital and her name is Florence Nightingale. <gasps> we have to cover her. I know. So, she's on oh our list God, and she's she is very important. She is a reformer of modern medicine. She wrote books about nursing. She wanted to bring, you know, efficiency and cleanliness to hospitals. And she is going to look like an asshole during this story. Oh, and I'm no. sorry. It's just... Was she racist? No, it's okay. well, kinda. Aww. But it's I'm gonna say it at the beginning and the end. Florence Nightingale is an amazing woman, and what Mary Seacole did does not take away her accomplishments. It's just that now we're learning about it. People think we're trying to erase Florence Nightingale, and that's not what's happening. They're right. not in direct competition with each other. They just had different methodologies, but right. we're working towards the same goal. Right. Well, and I hate that that like if you have two women who are doing similar things at a similar time, yeah. it means that you can't talk about the other one. It's like, no, we should be talking about both of them. Right. And they <laughs> did come in immediate face-to-face -face contact with one another. Yeah. So they knew about each other. They knew each other exists. They didn't necessarily agree with each other's methodologies, but they were both doing amazing things. Right. So it shouldn't matter because even like, even though Florence Nightingale is going to do some things in this story I don't agree with, that doesn't make her not an incredible person who totally reformed modern medicine for the rest of our lives. Right. I kind of like that history. She's like, we only need one lady nurse <laughs> in the 1800s. Thank you very right. much. Excuse me. <laughs> Everybody else, please take a seat in the back. Which is the, that's, that's the exact problem. It's like you can have more than one woman who did a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to make that clear. Cool. So Mary never thought for a minute that the doors would be slammed in her face for being black because in Jamaica, all the British officers respected her and her mother and like, were like, oh my God, they take care of us. They're so great. So she brought her references from doctors and high-ranking British officers that she had treated in Jamaica, but she's turned down and turned down and turned down by every group of people that she tried to get to send her to Crimea. And let's remember, she's the only one with experience on tropical illnesses. <laughs> For some reason, they're turning her away. <laughs> I've got credentials. <laughs> like, and they're like, uh, we're not interested in those, actually, but thank you. We'd rather them die from cholera than yeah. have a black woman <laughs> help them out. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So every day is full of dis disappointments. She even says, I would have worked for bread and water. I didn't need money. I just wanted to go and help these people, some of these men that I knew. But then the most disappointing thing happened. Mary applied to Florence Nightingale's company of nurses. And she obviously Florence is already in Turkey, so she doesn't have anything to do with this. But. 
she goes and one of Florence's companions involved in sending new nurses says, no, there's no vacancy for nurses now. So we can't send you. And Mary's like, if there were vacancies, they still would not have sent me. No, they need all hands on deck. It's the Crimean War for Crimean out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Did you write that joke? That just came to my head. That was really good. (laughs) I deserve. Should we rename the cocktail? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. The Crimean out loud. (laughs) Oh, my God. Crimean me a river. (laughs) (laughs) Repeating it makes me sound dumber. (laughs) So Mary should have quit at this point. She has doubts in her heart. She admits that she was openly crushed, that even Florence didn't want her in she decided to invest this disappointment into motivation. She's like, you know what? I'm going to fall back on my skills. I am going to head straight to the epicenter of one of the bloodiest war zones in human history. And I'm going to open a Jamaican hotel. (laughs) There she goes. (laughs) So her determination is strong. She ships herself to Crimea without any help from the British government. She gets a boat. Um, She does say in her autobiography, I don't blame them for not wanting me. If I didn't know me, I wouldn't want me either. I'm a woman (laughs) of color, but I'm worth it. (laughs) Like, she is just so unaccusatory. So... She's going to the front lines in Russia, but she couldn't resist visiting Florence's Turkish hospital on the way because she wanted to see why she rejected her. So she goes in and she says that there are nurses walking in and out like ghosts looking like they've seen hell. And she's like, okay, these women, they're dealing with something hard. They're silent. They're stoic. Mm. And that's the thing about Florence Nightingale. The reason she really changed nursing is because she made things regimented and disciplined and she ran the place with an iron fist and she had rules and cleanliness. And that's yeah. why she wrote books on nursing. Yeah. And Mary's methodology is just different. It's hand hands on. It's taking a dying person and rocking them in your arms when they need you. Yeah. So she's in this Turkish hospital and she bumps into a lot of her old friend soldiers from Jamaica and she's breaking all of Florence Nightingale's rules on accident but she's fraternizing with patients and you know she couldn't help but walk around and calm people down and fix bandages and try to help them and the other nurses are like what the fuck is she doing here (laughs) so they go get Florence and they're like this woman Mary's here we don't know what she wants we think she's looking for a job so Florence comes out and they meet face to face and she's like you know hello Miss Seacole like as nice as could be actually Mary describes her as having one hand on her chin and the other one under her elbow <laughs> hi Miss Seacole that's not how the autobiography explains her that's so funny um is there anything we can do for you you know if it lies in our power we'll absolutely do it and she's like listen I just need a room for tonight it's too dark to go back to my ship I just want to spend one night And Florence arranges it. No problems. Here, you can have a room. Um, But as she walks through the hospital, she's like, oh, my God, I am not going to ask Florence Nightingale for a job. Because if it's this bad here, how bad is it on the front lines? 
Um, so the Turkish hospital is four days from the front line. So many injured men refused to risk the trip. Oh. So yeah. Mary wanted to get as close as possible. So she gets up to the front line, finds a small patch of land a few miles away. And in just a few weeks, she builds a hotel. <laughs> and I mean, it is a respite. It's a general store. It's a hospital all rolled into one. And she calls it the British Hotel. <laughs> Do you think anyone's ever wrote a song about it? Maybe. Welcome to the Hotel Marisigle. <laughs> Probably. I'm sure they did. Yeah, I would hope so. Somebody yeah. needs to get on. Weird Al. Come on. Weird Al Start Yankovic. writing historical parody songs at some point yeah he should, he should. <laughs> at some point <laughs> it's your duty yeah i feel like they might be giants will be first to the <laughs> first to the catch um but you could come to this hotel and you could get boots and bedding and food and livestock and herbal medicine and alcohol Ooh, whoop, whoop, whoop. very important i know in these trying times and it was built of bits and pieces that she found on the warfront driftwood packing cases iron sheets salvaged items and the hotel's in the middle of a nowhere war zone but it's created as a home and an oasis whatever confusion and horrors existed elsewhere there was comfort at the british hotel and she built it for a grand total of 800 pounds so good honor. 800 yeah. pounds. Oh, my God. There are accounts of soldiers late at night arriving there and seeing people laughing at parties and drinking and taking late night conversations. It was a business whose profits would finance a higher cause. Mm. She charged the officers a lot of money for medicine and wine, but was very open with them that she's charging them more so she could give the privates free medicine. I love that. So cool. Is it makes sense? It's it does. like if you can pay more so other people can pay less, like do it. Yes, do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's why I do I love when like certain things are on like a sliding pay scale. Like I used to go to a um an acupuncturist who is like that, who was mm. like, Look, like here are the fees. Like if you can pay more, like please pay more. But if you can pay like if you need if you need to pay less, like that's totally I'll fine. still help you yeah I'll still help you right like and it is very cool and and that's what she's doing she's trying to get it's basically welfare to some yeah. of these soldiers and within weeks of opening her hotel had become the hotel of choice <gasps> the hospital of choice over Miss Nightingale oh my goodness and it showed because her medicine for dysentery and cholera actually worked so it got the attention of crimean war correspondents and they say her hut was surrounded every morning by soldiers who had faith in her healing with her track record proving them right Mary herself was described very vividly in more than 20 eyewitness accounts from the war and she was widely known as mother seagull to the troops men said Nothing served me. Nothing fixed me until I called upon Mary Siegel. She took the experience that she had and she used it. She would give them pomegranates to fix stomach problems. For the soldiers, she seemed like an angel because she finally did something. Now, the technical angel of Crimea is Florence Nightingale. And that's why the cocktail is called the other angel of Crimea, because that's who she was, because this town is big enough for the both of us. (laughs) (laughs) 
Florence was superb but pragmatic and the soldiers said yeah we could kiss only her shadow like she was in charge of the other nurses we didn't know her we didn't see her Florence visited the Crimean Peninsula twice Mary was on the front line every day oh my god every day she walked up to the front line an officer said that miss Seacole is often riding to the front with a basket of medicine her assistance made her well loved by all soldiers she was utterly unfazed by the shots and shells going on around her and she was carrying tea to men and stitching them up while they drank it oh my god incredible on the front lines she was a ready surgeon and one of the doctors on the front line recalls he said um, she was more comfortable and steady handed on a wound or broken limb than the best frontline surgeons that we have. One thing that all the eyewitnesses agree on is that she was a hero and had mass affection from everyone in Crimea. And they were amused at her loud, take no crap, domineering manner. She was a child of a British officer, and therefore the deaths of these men deeply touched her. She knew and talked to them, and she said it was like having a really large family, and that every night she would dream of which one she would dread of hearing passed away the next day. What an insane burden. To feel like that you're the mother of every soldier in the middle of a horrible war. I, I... that is I can't so imagine. much to put on one person. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Like I feel so blessed that my dreams nowadays are just of Timothy Chalamet <laughs> and not of, <laughs> and not of everyone dying <laughs> in front of me dying. I am so privileged. I know. Right. That's horrible. And it's like, it's like being a mother. It's like being a teacher. It's like being a nurse. There's these service jobs. We're just like in with these people all day. And then you lose one and you like, <gasps> It's like crushing. Like when you lose one, it's like losing all of them because it's like you don't want to pick one to lose. Well, and I kind of understand where Florence is coming from. Where like it's like, no, you cannot get distracted by like your feelings of like, I'm going to lose this person. It's like like if we need that medicine for someone else and they're clearly going to die, you can't treat them. Right. Yeah. It's like. And she's right. Yeah. It's like a cold way to look at it, but it's the classic trolley problem of like. You need to think of this as logically as possible to save the most lives. Like it is hard, but like, and this is the thing. The beauty of this story is that we need both of them that exist in the world. Right. And I love that there's a person who is like, nope, we need to make this mechanical and efficient. And Mary is like, I'm here on the personal level because we need both of those people. Right. Mm -hmm. And we do. And that's why they're both such lovely stories. She ends up getting sent letters from the mothers of soldiers and she just remarks that death is always terrible and says, if I told you the truth of Crimea, it would disgust you Mm. because one day in Crimea is a really long time. Oh my God. I also, um, don't know when, but Mary Siegel had a baby, I presume with her husband from way back in Jamaica, but her beautiful 14-year-old daughter comes and joins her. Oh, there we go. At okay. some point. Yeah. So <laughs> this is great. Woo. So Mary was biracial and her mother was biracial. So her daughter is even more biracial. Right. Like, so she is like it's like a very white. Right. It's like okay. a steady lightening of skin okay. over time, which I mean, most people would be like is desirable. But that's right. what they said that's was what desirable. They say, yeah. right. Your whiteness does not affect your beauty. 
1856, when they were sent home, she had served the war's ending. She had served 18 months there. And she was so sad that she was losing her huge family. She said, I can't sympathize with these men who are so excited to go home because I don't have a home to go to. And she faced the fact that she was going to leave with no husband and no money because she put all of her money into this free hospital for people. All the profits were back into it. And now it was all going to fall into Russian hands. She was glad to hear of peace, but she knew that it would cause her ruin. So she went back to London with nothing. She was bankrupt. She wasn't ashamed of poverty, but she knew that restarting her career late in life as a black woman was an uphill battle. But those soldiers hopefully wouldn't forget her. So she's in London and she's attending banquets of soldiers for Florence Nightingale. (laughs) And she keeps having to move into smaller and smaller houses and lodgings and is going to bankruptcy court. And yet at this time she decides I'm not gonna scoff at this i'm gonna wear my medals everywhere i go (gasps) yes so she wore her british crimea medal she wore her french legion of honor she wore her turkish award and some say she even had a word from the russian government for helping their sick soldiers on the front line Mm. when she didn't have to her plight begins to be chronicled by the british press who wrote about her so often during the war that why not write about her now so a group of Crimean veterans organizes a fundraising gala for Mary <gasps> Siegel in July 1857. They have a massive four-day event. Can't even imagine. With an <laughs> orchestra and like 80,000 people what? buy tickets, donation tickets, to come and show their respects to their other Crimean angel. The men would scream her name and she became a real celebrity in London. She used the attention to launch her memoirs, The Wonderful Adventures of Miss Siegel. In this (laughs) extravagant 200-page memoir, she makes a perfect example of self-publicity. She was fully in charge of her own image Mm -hmm. and is like the first British autobiography by a free woman of color in England a decade later her supporters joined together to get her a pension and Queen Victoria even donated 50 pounds to this pension to help support her in old age Mm -hmm. Prince Alexandria of Wales employs her and the Queen's nephew does a sculpture of her (laughs) oh not everyone liked this recognition though Florence revealed her indignation Mm -hmm. at Mary's celebrity she really did not think Mary operated with a proper set of morals or procedures and she thought Mary makes a profit she duped Queen Victoria and she sells alcohol. <laughs> Mary again volunteered to help the British, but Florence intervened, insinuating in her recommendation letter that she is little less than a brothel keeper. Florence said she kept, I will call it not a bad house, but something very much Wait, like it. Did you say bad house? A bad Oh, bad house. I, I thought you said bat house. And I was like, do you mean cat house? No, nope. bad house. Bad house. <laughs> a bad <Okay>. house. But <laughs> so, she says not a bad house, but something much like it. Anyone Ugh. who employs Miss Seacole will get much kindness, but also much drunkenness. But 
Even Florence could not damper her fame. She died in her sleep in London on the 14th of May, 1881, and she was 76 years old. But the soldiers are the ones who knew and loved her. And when they died, no one carried her flame. She was a celebrity that burned bright while she was alive. But when she died, it burned out. And when they died, it burned out. Her and her medicine was forgotten, and the successes of the traditional medicine did not pass down to the next generation. It wasn't part of British healing tradition. Mary was the wrong kind of doctor and had the wrong kind of skin color. Especially because Jamaica rose up against the British around this time, and the British feelings towards people of color hardened even farther. So Britain saw no need for black heroes. And for a hundred years, Mary was written out of history and (sighs) forgotten while Florence and her angelic story prevailed. If you want to learn more about that uprising, Katie did a wonderful episode on Queen Nanny that you can go and listen to several seasons ago. It has a really good cocktail. It really does. <laughs> that was one of my favorites of our whole series. It's very good. <laughs> um, even Professor Lynn McDonald, the founder of the Nightingale Society, does not see eye to eye with Sequel's supporters and is like, no, her role in the Crimean War is overplayed, which again, there's room for both of us because most historians do believe that she was forgotten and underappreciated because she was of color yeah but in 1984 when mary's autobiography was republished she made a comeback and interest in her life gained momentum and people started digging into her story and finding primary documents from soldiers and showed the incredible work she had done her success in crimea was literally because of her jamaican roots she's now studied by every school child in british curriculum <gasps> and in part of a national poll she was voted the greatest black british person of all time <gasps> even boris johnson 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 <laughs> Even Boris Johnson, whom we hate, (laughs) wrote recently upon learning about her in his daughter's school pageant. I find myself facing the grim possibility Uh, that it was my own education that was blinkered. (laughs) The grim possibility? You mean the blatant fact? (laughs) It's like, I understand that people like. I understand that older people are surprised about things that come out now, but it's like (laughs) you need to have the opinion that like, oh, my gosh, that's so great. I didn't know that, but I'm learning it now instead of being like, maybe my education wasn't right. (laughs) You know what? It was blinkered. (laughs) What blinkered. I love the bricks. (laughs) (laughs) Blinkered. I am starting to feel like we might be learning more as time goes on. <laughs> hmm. hmm. I don't know. No, we knew everything in 1945, and we I'm going to stick to that. Yep. What? <laughs> <laughs> what a ridiculous quote. Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, listen. I... As soon as Wikipedia said Boris Johnson, I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, okay wikipedia thank you for that what is that meme keep your secrets (laughs) exactly (laughs) um okay so she has had hospitals and public buildings named after her she's gotten awards and there's currently a biopic being made about her life really yeah oh that's so cool i'm really excited about it so again 
there's obviously a bit of controversy because people feel that bringing to light Mary Seacole is erasing Florence Nightingale. And we've covered enough that it simply is not. No. They are two necessary parts of history. A portrait of her was rediscovered recently, and it hangs in the National Portrait Gallery right next to Florence Nightingale. And it's an older, more mature picture of Mary after the war. She's wearing a red scarf of the Creole roots and her medals as a proud British subject. Her chin is held high like the other angel of Crimea that she is. And she has finally regained her place in history. I love it. That's Mary. I also... I personally love that you kind of brought Florence Nightingale's story into this because I hate that history and fiction and everything pits women against each other. Yeah. And it's like they may have disagreed, but like they still did good things separately. Yeah. Like, and you know what happened when Mary needed a place to stay? Florence was like, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, sure, I'll help you out. And you know what happened when Florence Nightingale had a banquet in her honor? You know who showed up? Mary. Yeah. She I, she went to the banquet. Because you know what? They're not fucking 10-year-old girls. No, they are women. I feel like everyone wants every conflict between women to be like this intense, Catty. like, cat fight. And it's like, grown-ass women are like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we're just, we're on different paths. And, right. like, we can totally respect, like... It's not like we told the stories of like Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant. I'm like, yeah, they were different sides of they thought differently about what the U.S. should be. So like, you know, we like can't really tell their stories in tandem. It's right. like, you, no, they can be together. Probably a terrible example. I no, don't but, know. I mean, but you know, like you can tell stories right, nobody, of male people in tandem, right. but not women. Nobody pins men with opposite opinions as a cat fight. Yes, exactly. And that's what they're trying to make of Mary and Florence. And I want to say that they're more mature than that. And I, I mean, they're educated, intelligent, amazing women. And yeah. both of them are allowed to exist during the Crimean <laughs> yeah. War. They can be in the same peninsula. Yeah, they <laughs> <laughs> again. There's room here for the both of us. <laughs> um, okay, perfect. Well, that was so interesting. I'm so, she's been on our list for so long. Yeah. And I'm so glad we were able to cover her. So that was perfect. We got to get more cocktails. These ones will be a little more Christmassy. Ooh. And we'll be right back. Bye. I'm Dave. I'm Jill. And I'm Mark. And we're the hosts of An Hour of Our Time, a podcast featuring topics ranging from the sociopolitical to the historical to the scientific with a bit of comedy mixed in. Want to learn more about the Mariana Trench? Curious about the history of baseball? Or can't wait to know more about the Crusades? We're here to help. Find An Hour of Our Time on Spotify, Apple's podcast app, or anywhere else podcasts are found. So we are back. We're back. New cocktails. New cocktails that look a little different. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So much different. So much folly. Yeah. They're very fallish. Um, I wanted to kind of create like a warm citrusy cocktail that felt kind of Christmassy because I feel like when you think of little women, you think of Christmas. Oh, it's definitely warm. Yeah. Um, so I'm super excited for this. Do you want to know what you're about to imbibe? Yeah. What's it called? Okay. So this is called Our Girl Joe. Mm. 
So it is two ounces of bourbon, a half ounce of maple syrup, a squeeze of fresh grapefruit juice, Angostura bitters, and then you top the whole thing off with cinnamon. Mm. Cheers. Mm. Great. It's delightful. I don't think I could have told you that maple syrup and um, grapefruit went well together, but it's yeah. just right. Yeah. This is based off of a New England sour. So that's um, vodka with cranberry and grapefruit. Uh, no, not vodka with cranberry. Uh, vodka with grapefruit. Okay. And maple syrup. So I switched out bourbon and added a little bit of cinnamon for just like a holiday flair. Do you know what's um, fun? I love a mm-hmm. sour because they're all such a different type of sour. Mm-hmm. Like anytime you have a sour, it's not what you expect no it's not and yeah this is very different and I just and it's so simple it's Mm. so like stupidly simple that like I love it (laughs) good I'm so glad okay so Allie what do you know about Joe March okay so (laughs) I have a confession (laughs) okay when I was a kid I was not into the little women Mm -hmm. and I just I had no affinity for prairie girls (laughs) I just really was like, I do not get it. I don't like Laura Ingalls Wilder. Shut up. (laughs) Like, I don't have time for you. It wasn't fun for me. I was like, I'm, I was just like a big city girl that just thought that bullshit was stupid. Like, Mm -hmm. I was just like, this is dumb. Mm -hmm. However, my childhood journal diary that I kept that I wrote your brother's name in a lot (laughs) (laughs) was a little women journal with like the actual cover of the little women book was the cover of my diary oh that's so cool it's like somewhere in my attic that I could show you at some point but don't read it (laughs) (laughs) but I just um I feel like Joe she's one of the sisters and she's like one of the most well-loved yeah I feel like of the little women girls now my daughter's are not allowed to watch a movie if there's a book available until they read it. So they have not read Little Women yet. But we're reading Dr. Doolittle right now. So right after that, we're going to do Little Women because I hear the movie that came out last year is excellent and a tearjerker. But I've just, we have a list of books and we're, it's really hard to read to your 10-year-old daughter because they're like, I just want to play video games. So (sighs) I watched... The 2019 version of Little Women. How was it? Incredible. So good. So good. <sighs> so good that I paid to own it. <laughs> I mean, I, I hear that it, like, the people who saw it in the it theater were like, Allie, if you don't see this, you you may as well not exist anymore. I regret not seeing it in theater. I really do. Because I've always actually. Should Casey, we write one out? Casey Should we write one out? For my birthday. Um, so Casey and I were talking about this the other night, how, cause I was like, one of my greatest joys in life that I can't do now is going to lunch by myself. I love eating lunch by myself. Sounds it like torture. My favorite thing. And I was like, I'm like, it's Casey's like, I would never. And I was like, no, it is such a pure joy. And then Casey's like, I've always kind of wanted to like go to the movies by myself. And I was like, that's my ultimate dream because I've never done it because I'm scared to. <laughs> None of this sounds fun. My best friend, her favorite thing is going on vacation by herself. Oh, I don't know if I could do that. That's uh, really scary. It 
sounds like torture to mm-hmm. me. Um, <laughs> I love. I just love chatterboxing. Yeah, like that would be difficult. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. This thing. I feel like I'm being bold with lunch, and I haven't even gone to a movie by myself, so I can't go to a trip yet. But, but yeah. So okay. Okay, Joe March. Joe March. Louisa May Alcott. Um, Louisa May Alcott. Little so <laughs> I want to thank Meg for this egg recommendation. Um, I loved it. I had so much fun researching it. And I also had so much strife being like, how do I summarize this? How do I put this in a little package? But thank you, Meg, for this awesome recommendation. Joe March is just a hero for the ages. Um. Okay, so I love that you started off being like, I did not grow up with Little Women because I didn't either. I, it's like really, okay. Because we're city (laughs) girls, Katie. It's because we're city girls. And like, I just really didn't grow up with her. But now, I mean, Joe March is like, truly one of my most favorite fictional characters of all time. Um, So last year, when Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan like when that adaptation was coming out, I was really excited about it. But I knew your rule of not going to see a movie before you read the book. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to read Little Women and I am going to go see the movie. So I bought the book and I was super nervous about it. Like I really put it off. I had tried to read books like Pride and Prejudice and Bordering Heights and it just did not work out. <laughs> I mean, how um, many people can stand six how, feet apart from each other in a room on. and pretend they love each other? I know. <laughs> so, I mean, it. <laughs> those books were built for quarantining. Um, I just, I read them. I couldn't Mr. focus Dawson. on them. I didn't understand the language. I didn't understand the relationships. I was so confused by them. They were so hard to read. But then I started reading Little Women and it came so naturally and easy to me. Wow. Honestly, I just fell in love with the characters and the setting. And I was completely shocked by how modern the book and the writing felt. Like, I really couldn't believe it. Obviously, it's American. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Obviously, some of the language is not what we're used to today, but like very few of it. And there are plenty of Victorian morals to be had. But overall, I didn't understand until I read the book why it is so timeless. Is it written beloved. like it's written like Tuck Everlasting? I feel like the I way that I read, not read Tuck it's Everlasting. very similar. <laughs> I've, I've read them both, but I feel okay. like it's very similar in its verbiage where it's just like, OK, this is a young girl. I can yeah. dive into this American story. Yeah. Which sounds so like anti-British story. Yeah. I'm, I'm just too stupid. Oh, I'm so dumb. <laughs> that was the like, thing. Jane I was like, hair is above my head. <laughs> that's the thing. I was like, I cannot understand little women because I'm so fucking stupid. Um, but no, it was, so, it was so good. And after I just, we finish, let me show I, you a text that Paige sent me. Okay, go ahead. I just want to encourage everyone to like, take a leap and read it and like, read it to your kids because it is so, uh, it's so great. It's so great. Um, so when we first meet Josephine March, who of course goes by Joe, she's 15 years old and she is very sad about not having any Christmas presents that year. So (laughs) Santa, the March family has decided to forgo a big Christmas this year because Mr. March is serving as a chaplain in the civil war for the union army. Damn. That was very important because Louise May Alcott is famously a staunch abolitionist. Yes, she is. This leaves the oldest girl, Meg, 
who is 16. Meg. Joe, 15. Beth, 13. And Amy, 12. At home at the, their orchard house in Concord, Massachusetts. Or like what is like kind of like known as Concord, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think they ever say specifically. Um, exactly. <laughs> All these girls. So they're there with their mother, Marmy. They call their mom Marmy, which I think is so That's cute. That's cute. I call my mom Peg. <laughs> <laughs> and their loyal housekeeper, Hannah. So right away, you get a really good sense of who each girl is. Meg is the prim and proper, responsible older sister. Duh. Beth is the sweet deer with just a heart of gold. And Amy is the youngest and least mature and is described as the most important person, in her own opinion, at least. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe is the second oldest sister, often described as the brother of the family. She is a passionate writer. She is quick to anger, but also very quick to excitement. She loves to play and roughhouse, but she also tries desperately to just keep her family together. She loves fiercely, but when she feels an emotion, she feels it all the way. And it can completely consume her, which I think is one of the reasons we love her so much. The book follows the four sisters and it specifically explores the period in a young woman's life where childhood and kind of elder childhood, like the teenage years and like young adult years are like overlapping with this like young womanhood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's that whole period. Um, And even though this book was an immediate success, Louisa May Alcott famously did not even want to write this book. We will absolutely cover her separately in another episode, like we said earlier. But in order to understand Joe, you have to kind of understand a little bit about Louisa. So in 1868, Thomas Niles, Louisa's publisher, asked her to write a book that would appeal to young girls. And Louisa was hesitant. She didn't really know anything about girls. She had always had male friends growing up. She was absolutely the Joe of the family. And Louisa even confided to a friend. She said, I could not write girl stories knowing little about any but my own sisters and always preferring boys. But she said, I'll try. (laughs) And in three months, she had the first half of Little Women complete, drawing from her own family. And the next year, she had the second half. And as many know, it was published initially in two volumes. But now those first two parts kind of solely exist as one book. So rather than go through the book and, you know, Joe's life in kind of a chronological fashion, I'm going to give you a quick timeline of like what happens to Joe. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the episode kind of breaking down Joe's relationships with the major characters. Perfect. um, Which I think gives us a better sense of who she is. Uh, And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the adaptation because I have so much to say about the 2019 (laughs) Greta Gerwig version. It's time. (laughs) Okay. Here is the quick summary. In the beginning, Joe is just a young woman playing with her sisters and her best friend, Teddy, who everyone else calls Laurie. <laughs> she works as a lady's companion for her great aunt, March. She doesn't like the job very much, but she loves the idea that since she is her companion, she will attend Europe with her when she goes. Throughout the book, we always see Joe writing. She writes plays, short stories, poems, and eventually she does get them published under an anonymous name. She always like she goes to the publisher and she's like, well, my friend wrote a story. 
Um, while her father is away at war, he gets pneumonia and Joe decides to cut off her hair so that her mother can go be with him to pay for her trip. Um, she sells it for $25, which is about like $780 like nowadays, I think. Yeah, well, I'd do that. I know. <laughs> while her mother is away, the younger sister, Beth, gets scarlet fever and is really sick but recovers. Um, eventually dad comes home from the war the next Christmas. So that's the kind of like the first book is Christmas to Christmas. Mm. In the second book, we see Meg get married. Laurie goes to college. Amy goes to Europe with aunt March instead of Joe. I know. And Joe moves to New York where she meets the older and wiser professor Friedrich bear. She is living at a boarding house. Um, she is kind of tutoring these young kids. She's writing these sensational gothic horror kind of stories for this paper called The Weekly Volcano. But Friedrich says that it is terrible. He's like, people like this are like similar to like people who like sell whiskey. Like ah. they just do it for money and they don't care what happens to like the real people who are consuming it. Um, so she gets upset and she's so embarrassed and she burns her writing and she moves back home. Laurie proposes to her. She turns him down and he goes off to Europe because he's so depressed. Um, Meg has twins. Beth gets sick again. Joe uses the money from her writing sales to take Beth to the beach to help her get better, but it's no use. And Beth dies. Joe becomes extremely depressed and lonely and she stops writing for a bit. Um, while off in Europe, Amy and Laurie fall in love and they get married and eventually come home. Uh, Friedrich Bear comes to visit. He and Joe fall in love and get married. Aunt March dies and leaves her estate to Joe and Joe opens up a school in the big estate. Oh, that is like a very quick overview summary. Just in case like no one has read this book Mm -hmm. or seen the movies or anything like those are just some like really crucial moments. Uh, I have a really important question. Yes. Are you wearing nail polish? I am. (laughs) What the fuck is happening? This is so lame. (laughs) I saw Giada baking the other day. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, her nails look so nice. I want my nails to look like that when I bake. (laughs) So I need everybody listening to understand that Katie's worn nail polish a grand total of maybe three times since I've known her of what, 14, 15 years? No, more than that. 22 decades I've known you before nail polish three times and baking is one of them is that so lame I was no, like I love it I want my nails to look nice when I cook things <laughs> no, that's perfect. So I just like I was looking at her and I was like her nails look so good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and <laughs> I, sometimes I, I schedule my day and that I have too much time in between jobs but not enough time to go home so the other day I just sat in a target parking lot and painted my nails okay okay so that's why my nails are painted. I was worried you were cheating I, on your fiance. No, <laughs> I wish. Um. <laughs> I'm just baking. No, I'm just baking. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um. Okay. So now that we have just the general timeline, which is not a complete timeline at all, because this book is like 500 page long. Um. I'm going to break down the relationships a little bit. So first I want to explore the relationship of Meg and Joe. Mm-hmm. So Meg, as I said, is the oldest sister and is always remembered as most sincere and responsible. 
And she has just a very simple storyline. She's like, yeah, I did what I'm supposed to do. I got married. I didn't marry a guy with money, but that's okay. And like people kind of forget about Meg, but she does struggle throughout the books with vanity and jealousy and being satisfied with her life. And she is based off of Louise's older sister, Anna. And this puts her at an interesting head with Joe because she does not value the things that Meg does. (laughs) They go to this dance together in the beginning of the book. And Meg is like, you can't dance at this party because you scorched your dress and it has a burn mark on it. And she's like, all right, whatever. Like I didn't care about it, but obviously you care. Um, But the thing that bonds the two of them is that they are the older two sisters. And as two people who came from families of four, you totally understand the dynamic. Like you split off, you split off. And there are these interesting dynamics that change and are fluid over time of like, you have the older two and the younger two, but then you have the one that you're actually closest with. Mm -hmm. And then you have the one that like, you like to go to these problems with. It's like very, you have the one that understands you the best. Exactly. And the one you have the most fun with. Yeah. Like, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So they are, kind of bonded because they are the two oldest ones and they are entering society get to do together but they're also working from the beginning of this book to help make ends meet for the family so meg dreams of being an actress on the stage and in her younger years she collaborates with joe on many projects um one of my favorite things that the sisters do in the books is that these put on they put on these grand performances in their house Louisa writes them in the book as the girls would have seen them in their minds. So they're not written as like, and then they put on a cute little play. It's like in the books, they're written as like, and then there was a dragon. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, they're written in these professional grade performances with like perfect scripts and perfect costumes. And these are in fact based on real plays that Louisa and her sisters would put on in the Alcott house. And they still have the boots that Louisa made to play her characters. Like they would make their own costumes and stuff. And like, I kind of love, like there's this whole theme throughout the book where it's like, is that what really happened? Or is that how you remembered it? You know? Well, that's every story. That's every story, especially one so rooted in real life. Mm-hmm. Even autobiographies. That's yeah, every story. That, is that absolutely. what actually happened or is that how you remember it? <laughs> so you kind of see the give and take of Meg and Joe's relationship and that they are, work really well, actually, creatively. And like Joe loves to write for Meg. But the one thing they do not agree on is Meg's future. Joe obviously has an independent streak and she's very distressed about the idea of Meg getting married. Meg is just not, I mean, Joe is just not ready to leave childhood and have their little troop broken up. When Meg gets engaged to John Brooke, Joe says, well, there's an end to peace, fun and cozy times together. She is just absolutely not having this. She's so upset. She says, It's worse than I imagined. I just wish I could marry Meg myself and keep her safe in the family. Kind of like wishing that she was a man, kind of wishing that she could just 
keep things the same forever, idealizing a life where like nothing had to change and like they could just be sisters together like forever. It's just like there's so much emotion wrapped up in like Joe thinking she's going to lose Meg. Well, specifically in that time period, like present day, if your sister gets married, you can still be like, we're going to go on a little sister quest. And then you can like go out to lunch and like go to the beach and like hang out for a weekend. But like back then it's like, you get married and your life is to be married and have mm-hmm. kids. And like your sister might come over, but it's not for fun. No, no, it's not. And it also is just this clear delineation of like, you are an adult who is married. There's mm-hmm. no like, Oh, well yeah, I got married, but like I still have fun and like do this and that. It's like, no, like you're on a completely different life path now. Yeah. It's not like I had kids, puff, puff, pass. It's right. Like, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. I have kids. Yeah. <laughs> but as we know, Meg does marry John Brooke and they don't have a lot of money and they end up having twins and having this very lovely but difficult life. And the beauty of Meg is that she gets married at the beginning of the second half of the series. So her storyline through the rest of the book explores the trials that married women go through, even if it was their choice and that they were happy to make. Happy doesn't always mean easy. And her life is very different from Joe's, but the reader is never made to feel like she made the wrong choice, which I think is so important. Like Meg is the woman who the little woman who chose the more traditional path from her other sisters. And like, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And we need a Meg in the story to be like, hey, I did it and it's totally fine, but I love that you didn't do it. Right. You know? And I think that there's so many women that exist like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, we were, that's so fun. We were even talking about it during the break that you, you make decisions in your life and you might be fully happy with your decisions. Yeah. And then you watch somebody else making different decisions and you're like, Ah, oh, fuck. Why yeah. didn't I do that? And mm-hmm. it's there's nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Envy is such a natural feeling because most likely that person is envying what you have. Yeah, absolutely. At the same exact time. Yeah. And I think that that's the beauty of the timelessness of little women is like <laughs> they can all live such different lives and be content with their choices and also look at their sister and be like, God. I wish I'd done that. Yeah. Like, it looks like you're having so much fun. Yeah. But then at the and same time, Joe, Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Joe's probably like, yeah, I wish I could just settle down with someone who yeah. loves me and not worry about money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So then we have Beth. So Joe and Beth are the closest, probably because they have opposite but paired qualities. Joe is brash and bold while Beth is calm and serene. Beth's passion is the piano. And we see this lovely storyline with her playing the piano at Laurie's house and just like the joy that it gives Laurie's grandfather. Like they have this really wonderful relationship. Um, And Beth is depicted as this perfect girl. She is often being called an angel. Joe even says, Beth is my conscience. And she like says it as if she will fall off a mortal deep end if Beth leaves her. But I think one of the reasons that Joe loves Beth so much is because Beth loves Joe for exactly who she is because she is like a fucking angel. (laughs) Beth loves Joe's quirks and her writing. And in one moment, Meg is really exasperated. She's like, oh, my gosh, look at Joe. She's out in the garden with Laurie. They're just running around. Will she ever be ladylike? 
And Beth says, I hope she won't. She's funny and dear as she is. And I love that she's like, what, Nick? Shut up. She doesn't have to change for anybody. Like, I love that she's like that. And then when Joe sells her first story, she does it in a way like she brings home the paper and they're reading it and they're like, oh my gosh, who wrote this? And Joe's like, I did. And Beth jumps up and she just runs toward Joe and she goes, she says, I am so proud of you, which I think is such a beautiful aspect of their relationship that it is because they can appreciate each other's gifts that like, it's just, I don't know. It's beautiful. It's okay to be different. It's okay that they're different. I've always seen my children as Joe and Beth. Oh my God. Yes. Like when I read the story, like those are the ones that I'm like, oh, they're exact opposites and yet they get along because they can appreciate the opposite qualities yes. in one another. That's totally it. Um, but as we know, Beth does leave the family eventually. She gets sick with scarlet fever after taking care of a poor family that they've been helping. She does recover in the beginning, but she is never as strong. And then, of course, later in the books, in their young adult years, Beth dies, which is something that did, in fact, happen to Louise's sister, Elizabeth, who she called Lizzie, not mm. Beth. Um, she died at the age of 22. And I think that this is kind of meant to ground the adult years in this way of like bad things do happen. And obviously this did happen to Louisa. And I also kind of wonder if she was fulfilling a wish that Louisa had to have at least one female character who did not have to get married. Because in one of the movies, the publisher says like, well, if you have a female heroine, make sure that she's either dead or married at the end making this kind of dark commentary about the real stipulations of Victorian literature. Like those were the rules. <laughs> like it was fucked. Like, because it was kind of like selling the notion of like, well, if you're not going to be a good girl who gets married, who chooses anything else in life, then like you might as well just be dead. And it wasn't even just the rules of literature. It was the rules yeah, of life. It was absolutely like, like the old maid was like, you may as well be dead. Yeah. If you are an old maid, you're dead to society. Yeah, exactly. Horrendous to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And then we have the sister who's on the other, other side of the spectrum, <laughs> Amy. So Joe and Amy are always depicted as having the most struggles with each other because they are two sides of the same fucking coin. <laughs> they are the most similar in their tempers, which means that they have the most epic fights and blowouts and, they are also similar in their passions. Like, you know, it's like Meg likes acting, but she's like, that's no, that's not my thing. Beth likes playing the piano, but she likes playing the piano for herself. You mm. know, she's like, no, this is a private thing that I enjoy. Amy is like, I am going to be the best painter in the world. And Joe is like, I'm going to be a professional writer. And they both like ground themselves in their passions and like build their personalities off of it which I think is incredible. I mean, there's a whole portion of the book just describing all of the different art styles that Amy tries. And then she goes to Europe with the goal of studying art. She says in the book, the world is hard on ambitious girls. And then she says in a different part, I want to be great or nothing. And these are the memories of Amy that are unfortunately buried in our remembrance of her as everyone's least favorite character. 
<laughs> which I think is primarily to blame on the fact that she's 12 when the book starts and she is very immature and that's the kind of image that we all get of her but we forget that she grows I kind of like both those quotes yeah they're so great that's how I feel about everything yeah no, <laughs> I want to be great or nothing forget it exactly and we see Amy when she's young and she wants to go to the parties with Megan Joe and like she just wants to be in the action and she's so resentful that she has to stay home which unfortunately results in one of the most famous scenes where she burns Joe's novel something that most readers cannot never get over They're like she did that fuck her <laughs> like I'm writing Amy off she's fucking horrible yeah that's not cool and then like Amy goes to Europe with Aunt March instead of Joe and then she and Laurie fall, fall in love in Europe and get married just all these things that people are like that's Joe's life that she's supposed to be living you know just not I, I, I think that people think of all these things are like Amy being spoiled and like well Joe works for those things and Amy's just getting it handed to her but I think that we should read it instead as Amy saying yes to the opportunities that are presented to her and her going after what she wants. Because it's not like she didn't want things in life. She desperately wanted things. And like just because like they kind of lined up with the things that Joe wanted and didn't get, per, you know, kind of like I think people just see them very differently like she and joe have the same ambition but because she is presented in a feminine light compared to joe's masculine light we respect joe and not amy yeah it's not it's not amy's fault that she got the things that she wanted yeah no it's not at all and like did she do some things that are kind of unforgivable like in the book yeah sure she absolutely yeah. did mm -hmm. like it's not like, cool sometimes the way she treated joe but no also, absolutely like, not she's allowed to like take the opportunities that she's confronted with and then yeah. run with them and no she did. absolutely and yeah. it's like that's what's fair it is and this is how the real life amy was abigail may alcott or Alcott. Alcott. Alcott? It's apparently Alcott. Mm, what I read or I saw in a movie. Louisa May Alcott <laughs> is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it too. Um, Abigail was incredibly ambitious. She really did study art in Europe and ended up working as an art copier. And I would highly recommend looking her stuff up. It's beautiful. And you can even see the things she painted in the Alcott home, including white lilies in the beams of the attic, which... Greta Gerwig included in her film um and in the story we see that everyone is afraid of what Joe will say about Amy and Laurie because it's like oh like Joe that was your great love like what are you gonna do Amy's always been your enemy and your nemesis da 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 da, da. but Amy and Joe have both matured and like although it catches Joe at a particularly kind of like vulnerable time and she's feeling lonely because Beth just fucking died and whatever like they both matured and they can both just be truly happy for one another. So I just want to say that I love Amy and I want justice for her character. And I believe that the Greta Gerwig version gives her the justice that she deserves. Um, justice for Amy. Justice for Amy. <laughs> if this were her cocktail, it had pickled limes in it. <laughs> yeah. So now that we've gotten through all the sisters, I want to talk about Joe and Laurie for a bit. Mm-hmm. So from the very beginning of Joe and Laurie's relationship, you can sense their immense chemistry. 
They meet at this party when they're both kind of trying to get away from the crowd. Joe can't dance because she scorched her dress. <laughs> and Laurie tells her that they can manage by dancing in the hallway. And thus begins one of the most iconic platonic friendships, or if you say it this way, unrequited loves mm. of all time. Laurie comes from a very wealthy family, but he is a constant disappointment to his grandfather who he lives with. His grandfather thinks that he's too feminine and he thinks it's terrible that he pursues music and art instead of business like he should. And Joe connects with him because she is obviously not feminine enough for the life that she's supposed to live. And they become friends. Their closeness is absolutely reflected in the fact that everyone else calls him Laurie and Joe chooses to call him Teddy. And you just get all these little vignettes of their relationship and they are so intimately close and like physically comfortable with each other that you would think that like Victorian teens would not be right or not supposed to be. But like they really are like brother and sister, like the way they interact with each other. It's absolutely beautiful throughout the books and you can see it in action in the movies, which is so great. But after Meg gets married, Joe goes to New York to pursue writing. Laurie goes off to college. Um, He is trying to become a responsible adult in order to pursue Joe. But when they meet back at home and he tries to propose to her, it obviously does not go well. It is one of the most iconic scenes of all time. And one of the things I love about it is that in the book and in some of the movies, (laughs) before Teddy says anything, Joe looks at him and she goes, Teddy, don't. And he's like, come on, Joe, we have to have it out. And it's this whole scene of like him saying like, no, like we're supposed to be together. And she's like, no, you don't understand. It would be terrible. <laughs> and like it's this move that like some people hate and some people admire. Joe turns him down and she says, look, I don't love you in the way that you want me to love you. And I would be lying if I say that I did. And, of course, I want Joe and Laurie to be together, especially when it's Tim- Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But you can't deny that she's right, especially how things turn out. And in the end, he admits that she was right. He says, I will always still love you. But, like, it's a different love than I feel with my wife, Amy. It's very Luke Leia Hans situation. Totally, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> She's like, I don't love you because and you're my brother. Yeah, exactly. And he was like, I couldn't see it before because he had never had a close relationship like that. Right. And I think that that happens to a lot of people where, like, you misinterpret just gen- genuine friendship for, like, romantic love. Yeah. Uh, Katie, I think people did that to you. <laughs> yeah. On a regular basis. Okay, so Katie is the youngest of four, and she's the only girl. Mm -hmm. So anytime she had a platonic relationship with any of her older brother's friends, people mistook it for a crush or for love. And, of course, sometimes you're going to get, like, the tingly feelings about somebody. But, like, there were definitely moments when people were like, oh, they're meant to be together. And Katie's just like, no. No. Because I always knew that I was meant to be with Casey. Right. (laughs) And the funniest thing is that Katie's boyfriend, right, but this is so personal. No, please. I love getting personal. Okay. Katie's boyfriend, right, before Casey, his name we won't mention, it's Smalik. He was talking to me and Katie's mom and one time was like, I just don't know. She's just so into this guy. I'm just really uncomfortable about this boy, Kevin. (laughs) 
and we go we looked at each other when he walked away and we go she's worried about he's worried about the wrong the wrong brother yep because <laughs> yep. katie was like we knew that she was really into fiance who is kevin's younger brother and we were yep. like he doesn't even he's mistaking this platonic relationship which was beautiful and pure and yeah. fun oh my gosh as something that it's not and yes. now he's your brother-in-law now he's my brother-in-law <laughs> <laughs> and we never talk <laughs> and your ex-boyfriend was really worried about you guys no we still we still talk obviously but like <laughs> but it's not the same you know yeah. but like we did have this just i do i really feel like Kevin is my Laurie, yeah. just this person that I so got along you with. But like, with, but now, it was not a love relationship. No, it, it wasn't was just a relationship. And the thing is, like, now that we're both like partnered up, like we still see each other because now we're related, <laughs> <laughs> just like Joe and Laurie and are me too, somehow. Yeah, <laughs> and you too. Um, but you know, and it's like, it's just the beauty of platonic relationships and the fact that like they don't have to look the same all the time. Yeah. And people can misinterpret them all they want. And like, even the people in them can misinterpret them. Like, thankfully Kevin and I did not have that problem. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I just, my, but, me and your mom's eyes yeah. getting huge and me like, <laughs> he's worried about the wrong brother. <laughs> like, That's so It's a very funny. fun moment. I plan on saying it at your wedding, but I don't, Aww. I don't know if you're ever going to get married. Yeah. Who knows at this point? <laughs> the goal is to say, he was worried about the wrong brother. Yeah. It was Kirk. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's going to be the punchline. Oh, I love a good punchline. Um, but I just, I think that Laurie and Joe's relationship is so important because it shows a platonic relationship. And even if one person doesn't recognize it's platonic at first, like he does eventually. And he comes back to Joe and he goes, are we still friends? And she's like, yeah, she's like, we're still friends. She's like, we're never going to have the relationship that we had, but like, yes, we are still friends because girls and boys can be friends without it being romantic. Like you can be married to my sister and we can be friends. Yeah. It's kind of like how, like I was so nervous that mad men was going to make Peggy and Don into a couple. Oh my God. Yes. They never did. Never did. did Such a nice job with that. God, (laughs) because most shows, Will not let you get like they should not have ever let Nick and Jess date in New Girl. I, I didn't think, watch New Girl. I feel oh. like I should. Um, you absolutely should. They should never have let them date. But I feel the same is true of Penny and Leonard in mm-hmm. in um, Big Bang Theory. Just like yeah. it just wasn't right. Like yeah. everybody's trying to replicate the Ross and Rachel, and you yeah. just. And really, Ross and Rachel Can't. shouldn't have been fucking together. Oh, my God. It was terrible. No, no, no. They shouldn't have. But at least they did it first. That's true. That <laughs> well, I is mean, true. first if you don't count Cheers and every other sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> so now I want to talk about Joe and Marmy. Mm, mm, do it. Joe and her mother are obviously very close in the book, and Marmy spends the novel trying to encourage her girls to be good, generous, helpful people while also kind of struggling with the fact that, like, her husband's away. She is lonely. She struggles with the fact that, like, they don't have a lot of money right now. Like, her husband made some poor financial decisions, much to Aunt March's dismay. And, like, they don't have a lot, and they're just making do. Well, that's what happens when you have three girls. It four is. girls. It is. Four girls. children is a lot. <laughs> And one of the most important scenes in the entire book, in my opinion, is the aftermath of one of Joe and Amy's fights, which ends in like 
Amy trying to make amends and she goes to chase Joe and she falls through the ice and Joe is so mad at herself because she's like, God, if I had, if I had just forgiven Amy, then everything would have been fine. And she wouldn't have chased after me and she wouldn't have fallen through the ice. And like, I'm so stupid. Like, why can't I just get control of my temper? She's like, God, Marmy, I wish I was like you, like you never get angry. And Marmy, the way Louisa May Alcott describes it, she sits on the floor with her and she says, like, Joe, like, even though you don't see it, she says, quote, I am nearly, I, fuck. <laughs> quote, what? What did she say? Did she say, fuck? Quote. quote <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Marmy said, fuck. Marmy said, fuck. <laughs> she said, I am angry nearly every day of my life. Mm, I hear you. Same girl. I know. Same. And she kind of goes on to describe. She's like, I've been trying to cure it for 40 years, but I've only even managed to just control it. And this is so crucial because Marmy is like the beacon of goodness and the moral compass of the family. And she is just being straight up honest with her kid about the things that she struggles with. And then... After she kind of makes this confession to Joe, she also like makes a point to tell Joe. She goes, I am so grateful that I have daughters that feel comfortable coming to me with their problems. And I think that these are two lessons that are so important because like obviously like I don't have kids. I'm not a parent, so I can't really like just I don't know what it's like. I mean, one star would not recommend. I mean, (laughs) but here's the thing. Ooh, mic flipped. Um, But here's the thing. I am an aunt and I am a being a person who is surrounded by children, you know, on a regular basis from all the various points in life. You know, it's like I can see when kids feel comfortable going to their parents and they're not afraid of them versus kids who are completely terrified of telling their parents fucking anything. And, I just feel like Marmy is a shining example of why it is important to like talk to your kids and be honest with them. And I think it's really important because I feel like we think of the Victorian model as like, no, the parents are perfect (laughs) and you try and get your kids to be perfect, but sometimes it doesn't work and it's not your fault. And Marmy is there like, no, 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 (laughs) Joe, you and I had the same exact problem. And like, I don't know if you'll ever get over it. She's like, I hope you will. I'm trying to make it. You'll so learn that- to control it. Yeah, exactly. But she's, she's like, like explaining it like it's an X-Men power. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> like, you have it, but you'll learn to control it. Yeah. And I feel like she's like, look, the best we can do is try our best. And I just feel like it morphs into this like real world kindness where eventually like Joe is kind of met with this you know, problem. And she cuts off her hair in order to help her mother pay for a trip to see her father who is sick. And you just kind of see that like Marmy is so proud of her daughter, even though she's telling her that like, she's like, you really didn't need to do that. <laughs> but that it's was like in the moment, but it's like, <laughs> that's, breath. that's the action. You know, it's like when you're honest with your kids, they feel like they can be honest with you and sacrifice things for you. Right. You know? And I just think it's a beautiful example of an honest mother daughter relationship well I think when you realize that your parents are human you can be human for them yeah a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking that their parents aren't like actual people whose feelings can get hurt yeah and I think that happens when parents don't apologize for yelling yeah like sometimes you're gonna snap that makes you a person you're allowed to yell but that doesn't mean that your child doesn't deserve you to say like 
hey, you know what? I'm sorry. I went yeah. a little over the line. My bad. No, but, exactly. But like, that's my button and you pushed it. So yeah. now we've learned something about each other. Yeah. And like, I remember very specifically, like I was finishing the Harry Potter series and I was like, kind of like looking at my dad and I wrote him this letter and I was like, I feel like I've always thought of you as like Dumbledore and like you are this like person who like in the beginning of this year is like Dumbledore can do no wrong. Like he is this beacon of like perfection. And then when I got older, I was like, oh no, like you're actually Dumbledore. And that like you realize Dumbledore is not perfect. He's flawed. He's, He's a flawed very character. flawed and he makes poor decisions and he doesn't always like I always thought of my dad as a person who's like, no, like my dad always does what's right. And it's like, no, he doesn't always. And like once my and dad nobody does nobody does because and like once my dad started opening up to me about stuff like that he's like oh yeah i guess i made lots of mistakes you know and like he's telling me about them and like oh my god like that's exactly it like when you're a kid you think of dumbledore books like one to three or whatever and then you realize you're like oh my god like parents are flawed people who are also trying to work out their own shit while raising human beings so uh just shout out to parents um <laughs> Because and also traumatized children. Yeah, really. Because <laughs> just I, the whole lot of you. Just the whole lot of you. Because um, I think it's amazing that anyone even tries to parent. <laughs> Again, one star. Again, one star. Would not, not recommend. recommend. <laughs> Please don't do it. Um, just kidding. <laughs> um, and right now I gotta give a little shout out to Aunt March. <laughs> so Aunt March is obviously just the old crotchety rich lady in the book who disapproves of everything especially joe while we're um, talking harry potter this is neville longbottom's grandmother it totally <laughs> is um and i'm not gonna dwell too long on aunt march but the fact of the matter is at the end of the book she leaves her estate to joe she's like have my house and joe's like what the fuck and laurie is like well you're gonna sell it right that'd be the most financial wise move and she's like no I am going to turn it into a school. Kind of like this thing of like, God, Aunt March would fucking hate if I turn this into a school. <laughs> but also, I think it shows that Aunt March respected Joe. I think she thought that like Amy was the hope of the family and the person to like really do things right because she was like, well, Beth fucking died and Meg married a poor person. So like, <laughs> what are we going to do? Um, but then you have her, I think, secretly respecting Joe. And I think it kind of goes to show that you do have people rooting for you, even if they can't really express it. So I just, I want to give a little shout out to Aunt March because I feel like she kind of redeems herself in that action because um, she's kind of just an old bitch. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we have to talk about Professor Bear, a.k.a. Fritz. That's what she calls him, Friedrich Bear. So she meets him when she's living at the boarding house in New York and they get along really well, um, but in a much more grown up way than her and Laurie, probably because she's like 24 and he's like 39, which isn't like an insane age difference, especially nowadays, I feel no way, like. Yeah. Um, but when they meet, she is writing these very sensational stories for the weekly volcano. Um, they're very gory, they're very graphic, but she's like, whatever, I'm just fucking making it as a writer. Like, this is what I came to New York to do. 
Um, and it's something that's definitely bringing in money for Joe, but it's clear that Fritz does not approve. He says that publishing stories like this is like selling whiskey. It brings in money for those who sell it, but it causes harm for people who consume it, which I also, I kind of think it's an apt description because like, it's kind of like the whole video game thing nowadays. It's like video games aren't necessarily bad. It's bad if like, you know, you have a lack of, and I don't want to say self-control because like, I don't think that it's anyone's like particular fault that like they become like an alcoholic or an addict or anything like that. But I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily like the seller's fault. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, absolutely. It's um the, the, you know, it's like how you can't say that like it's the creators of Facebook's fault that I spend nine hours a day on my phone, mm-hmm. right? Like at some point I need to say to myself, it's time to put your phone down or I need to set myself a timer or I need to this, that or the other. Right. And it's like at some point did the people in the middle who then created the algorithms have something like we can get more people to spend time on this if we do X, Y, Z. Of course they can. Of course. Yes. Yeah. But like. At this point, we're just talking about like creator and receiver, right. you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I just don't really think that it's fair for him to be so judgmental about this because money is a big theme in these books. Like we meet the March girls and like it's obvious that they don't have like they have come from money, but they don't have a ton of money. And it's very clear in the books also that like there's no clear way for women to make money in the world. Right. And uh, I just like, I think it's bullshit that he's saying this because it results in her being really embarrassed and she burns her writing. She goes up to her room and she, and like, he doesn't even know that she's the author. He's just like talking about how bullshit it is. And he goes, these people should be like fired. This is terrible. It's a curse on humanity whatever. And she burns her stories and she stops writing. And I think it's really like impactful that the book says the ink stains on her fingers went away. And I, I mean, it's also, it shows the, the way that anonymity affects people these days, the way that you talk trash and people on the internet. And then you realize they're real people. Like Mm -hmm. I've definitely had people say things to our account before and then I'll answer and they're like, Oh, we didn't realize there was like a real person running this account. And it's like, no, everybody doing everything is a person. Yeah. So maybe like back the fuck up. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that and, you know, maybe he would have been as harsh if he knew it was Jeremy. He'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. But like he's just talking in general and she's like, oh, my gosh, that's me that he's talking about. I think he may have just been more of like a helpful critique if he knew it was her. Probably. So. She burns her writing. She stops writing. She leaves the boarding house to go home, um, as she says, with no book, no fortune, but a good friend. Like, she appreciates that, like, because in a way, like, Fritz knew that she was capable of more. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, like, that is kind of what Joe needed to be like, okay, no, like, you can do more with your writing here. Um, but... Anyways, he visits with the family for a few weeks at the end of the book. And, of course, they fall in love and get married. Which leaves us to the last, final, and most important relationship of the entire book and series or whatever is Joe March and Louisa May Alcott. I mean, obviously, Joe March is Louisa. 
but Louisa was never really allowed to give Joe her own ending. So Louisa was single for her entire life and happily so. She wanted this to be the same ending for Joe, but the publishers and the readers demanded that Joe be married. Obviously, she got most letters being like, she should marry Laurie. (laughs) Of course. But she was like, well, if I have to marry her off, it is going to be to a very different kind of love interest, which obviously came in the form of Friedrich Baer. Many people read Joe and Louisa as asexual, lesbian, even transgender. I don't know if we can really put any hard and fast labels on either of them, but I like the idea that anyone can read themselves and their sexuality in Joe. She often laments that being a girl, Joe spends a lot of the time wishing to be a boy. She wants to run off and join the army. And Mr. March refers to her as his son. Like, it's very clear that, like, Joe feels very limited by her gender. And Louisa even said of herself at one point, I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I've fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. (laughs) And again, I'm not going to put any labels, but having this very important person in history expressing these things that people today struggle with and then putting those emotions into a fictional character that people can reread and relate with is incredible. Right. I just, I love it. And I wish we could find a draft where she wasn't married so that we could publish that. I know. I wish. There's actually a really contested author who wrote a book called Joe and Laurie about like, it's kind of like fan fiction of like, (laughs) what if they did get married? Ah, (laughs) We don't want Laurie. (laughs) Of course there is. So I just, I, I want to like, and that part on Joe and Louisa, because I think that the relationship between author and character, because they are one in the same in a sense, is so important. And I I just love that you can read so much into either of their lives. For sure. I just love it. It's beautiful. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the adaptation. Tell us. Tell <laughs> us. Uh, the movie you've all seen by now. <laughs> I know. So the first one in 1933 starred Catherine Hepburn as Joe and was made kind of in response to the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. So people wanted to just feel anything good again. So as beloved as this one is, it does leave out some important aspects. So people wanted to feel good. So they didn't include things like Amy burning Joe's manuscripts and like other really important conflict between the sisters. But the thing that remains is Catherine Hepburn's spirited performance that has inspired every performance ever since. Like she is just a good Joe. She's a very good Joe. And then comes the 1949 version. Um, this stars June Allison as Joe, Elizabeth Taylor as Amy. The ages of the actresses were all over the place for this one. <laughs> and this was basically a remake of the 1933 film, using the same score and even the same dialogue, again, focusing more on the romances than the struggles. They also, in this one, change the birth order and they make Beth the youngest which is kind of weird. Nobody wants a baby to Nobody die. Nobody wants a baby to die. Um, 
And then the 1994 version, which stars Winona Ryder as Joe, yeah. Claire Danes as Beth, Kirsten Dunst as Amy. Um, well, young Amy. They do get a different actress it to play her. It is a good older. casting. It's a very good I casting. I like that one. Susan Sarandon is Mari. Christian Bale is Laurie. And this version is really important because it brings back some of that conflict and the memorable moments from the books while also bringing in elements of Joe's clear feminism. Like there's this whole scene where she is at the boarding house with Friedrich and they're having this really intense philosophical discussion. And she's like, uh, I think that women should have equal rights. <laughs> I mean, Winona Ryder, right? Uh, right. Perfect. I'm obsessed with her. I know. And I think that this fact comes from the fact <laughs> that this was the first version directed by a woman. Jillian mm. Armstrong directed the 1994 version, That's which I would like to point out. Yes. Um, there is a 2017 version, which I did not know existed. Um, I've it's, never even heard of it. Never heard of it. So it was a BBC miniseries done in three parts. Oh, that's fine. Um, Maya Hawke stars as Joe. Hmm. So she was, um, what's her face in seven stranger things. <laughs> the other scoops girl. Yeah. Yes. I yes. can't remember her name. I know who you're talking about. Yes. So, and she's also like Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> but I, so she stars as Joe and it's like a BBC series. Like, and they kind of explore like the war part of it more. Apparently. I don't know. I haven't seen it, but the one that I most want to talk about is the one written and directed by Greta Gerwig. So first off, it has an all-star cast, Laura Dern as Marmy, Saoirse Ronan as Joe, Emma Watson as Meg, Florence Pugh as Amy, Eliza Scanlon as Beth, Meryl Streep as Aunt March, and the love of my life, Timothy Chalamet as Laurie. I mean, you can't cast it better. <laughs> you can't cast it better. And Bob Odenkirk as Mr. March? I, I was like... What is Better Call Saul doing in this fucking movie? Like, that's insane. <laughs> Listen, it the casting is impeccable. It it's was, so good. I want that person to cast my life when I, it's made into seriously. a movie. And uh, I just... Marisha is uh, Allie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just... I'm going to talk about this one the most because it's the most recent and it's the only one I've seen in full. And it's the most good. <laughs> and I think that Greta takes the film in the most bold and interesting direction. So I'm going to share some things from the movie that I've learned from interviews. <laughs> The first thing you need to know is that Greta Gerwig wrote the movie in an achronological order. So you're constantly going back between childhood and adulthood. And she even used different filters, which is common, you know, mm -hmm. but to signify the different time periods. So she, sh she shot childhood in this kind of warm golden glow and then adulthood in these kind of cool blue tones. Right. Sapia. Sapia yeah. for the old times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I think that the most striking thing that this does for the viewer is it really shines a light on one of the points that, like, the book has, which is that, like, things in youth are different from adulthood. Like, youth is golden because you're remembering it as so. You're remembering youth as, like, no, we just had fun because you weren't seeing what your parents were going through, <laughs> which I think is a really salient point. And you see like kind of mirrors of things because she can, she does it in a chronological order. So like 
you see Amy burn Joe's book in childhood because she's mad and petulant. And then in adulthood, you see Joe burn her own writing because she's like, no, this writing is immature and it's not good enough. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like it's all just all these mirror imaging. And you see the first time Beth gets sick, Joe wakes up because she's standing steadfast at her bedside and she wakes up and Beth is not there. And she runs down and she's just recovered and having breakfast with Marmy and Hannah. But in adulthood, she wakes up and Beth is gone and she goes downstairs and Marmy is alone. And you see the mother break down and cry. Like she is sitting down, Saoirse Ronan as Joe is standing and she is clutching her daughter and she is wailing into her skirt of like, this isn't the same. Like yeah. she is gone. And it's just like, the fact of the matter, like when you're an adult, like, yeah, people die. Like this isn't the childhood optimism. Like this is the real shit that happens. Greta also wrote the screenplay with a lot of movement and action and warmth. Um, one of my favorite scenes is the Pickwick press where the girls are just being so silly and goofy and warm. Like this is like the little newspaper they have, which is described in the book and it's so cute. And they like kind of like pretend that they're men and they dress up (laughs) and it really doesn't come across as well in the book because she kind of writes it in the book as a newspaper. But then when you see it, in person like they're just being so silly and they're smoking pipes and stomping their feet and then you just get this sense of like oh they're playing because they're fucking kids <laughs> and she also uses costumes to portray something deeper in the film you notice how joe is never wearing a hoop skirt or a cur corset so she moves a lot more freely than the other girls and she also has this fun thing where she's always wearing vests and Like throughout the whole movie, her and Laurie switch vests and they kind of like share costuming to portray like just how close they are. And also to portray that like they are both kind of androgynous, like and the idea that they're almost the same person. Right. (laughs) A male and female version of themselves. Of themselves. Greta also gave all the girls primary colors to wear. Amy was blue. Joe was red. Meg was green. And Beth was like this purplish pink. And like so it's not like a very obvious thing like but they all kind of have these colors but whenever you see marmy she's wearing a collection of all those colors oh cute i know <laughs> it's just such a subtle but beautiful touch to the costuming and another thing that greta does is she opens up the character of amy a little more and you see that she's so much more than a spoiled brat she is a woman who knows what she wants and won't settle for anything less and she's towing those gendered lines of when women say what they want and they're bratty like being like no just because i'm talking about what i want doesn't mean that i am like a bitch or a brat or bossy yeah or, exactly yeah, exactly and Greta gives her this incredible speech about how a woman in her time doesn't actually own anything that she has. She says, if I make money, it will belong to my husband. And if I have children, they belong to my husband. And she's kind of telling this to Laurie because he's like shaming her for wanting to marry wealth, this wealthy guy. And she's like telling him, she's like, you don't understand what my situation is. And she goes, so don't sit there and tell me that marriage is not an economic proposition because it is. 
And she gives this power to Amy that is so often lost when people, you know, just see some other movies or even like read the book. Sometimes it just kind of gets a little muddled. And with Greta Gerwig's version, it is like right up there front and center. And she also collapses the characters of Joe March and Louisa May Alcott. Joe gives an impassioned speech at one point talking about how she is so sick of love and marriage being all a woman is fit for in this world. And that comes from like some things that Louisa May Alcott actually said. Those are not from the book. That's from Louisa's life. That's so cool. It's so fucking cool. (laughs) And Greta also gives a little bit of herself to Joe. When she's writing her book in the movie, she lays out every page on the ground in order, which is what Greta does when she's writing a script, which I think is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and Greta also makes the bold choice in making Professor Barry young and cute instead of old and unattractive. <laughs> and I mean, I have always kind of hated that Joe marries this super old man. And I love that Greta was just like, fuck it. If she's going to do this, he's going to be really fucking cute. <laughs> Yeah. She also writes this kind of iconic last scene very differently. So the second to last chapter is called Under the Umbrella. And every movie portrays it, you know, the kind of the similar is like, you know, Joe and Professor Bear meet under the umbrella and they realize they're perfect for each other and they kiss. But rather than Joe running off alone to catch him and then this having this private moment, Meg and Amy hop in the carriage and they pull Joan along with her Joe Joe along with them and they're like you have to run after him and it's like they all chase him together and they have they're still like precious moment alone under the umbrella but her sisters the real loves of her life are there cheering her on which I I love that choice that she made that it was like the remaining sisters being like I fucking got you and like I'm here for this. We will carry you to the end. Yeah, exactly. And then comes my favorite change that Greta made. So most of the Little Women adaptations end under the umbrella in this big romantic swell. It's like, oh my God, thank God, Joe finally has a man in her life. <laughs> but that's not where the book ends, frankly. <laughs> the book ends in this chapter called Harvest where the family is having a party at the school that Joe has opened up. And... Greta kind of melds this ending. So this party at this school, it's beautiful. Kids are playing. She's carrying a cake. They're all, the whole March family is together and celebrating, but she splices it together with scenes of Joe watching her book be bound together. And it's like these beautiful scenes of like the pages being cut and the binding being sewn and the gold press being sealed onto the cover of the book. And it's kind of this ambiguous ending because you're kind of like, well, what's actually happening? Are they both happening? Is Joe having this school and having her book published and living her complete full realized life? Or is she, cause like the little book is little women and mm. it's like, Oh, or is she writing this as the last chapter? And then, like, that is just, like, the imagined chapter She's in her book. She's just hoping she gets there. Right. Right. Because also what we see are the meetings between Joe and her publisher. Mm. And he's telling her, like, look, you need to have these 
characters like married off and he's like I don't understand why she didn't marry the neighbor boy and he's like (laughs) saying all these things that like really did happen to Joe and he's like I she needs to be married and like just these like like I just I think it's so incredible that like she's blending Joe and Louise's actual life and then in one of these meetings with her editor like publisher He's like, okay, well, here's what we can offer you. Like, you sell us the copyright. We'll give you this percentage and that percentage. And Joe goes, no, I want to own my book. I'm not going to sell the copyright. We can negotiate anything else, but, like, I own the copyright. Because that's what Louisa May Alcott actually did. Mm. She kept the copyright, which meant that she made money off of that book and all the reprintings for the rest of her fucking life because she would not settle and sell her book. And I mean, it's been 250 years and <laughs> it has never been out of print. It's so, I mean, it's such a good book. It's such a good book. <laughs> and all of this means that the story of Joe March and independent spirited women has also never been out of print. And that's the story of yeah. Joe March. <laughs> That's so good. I just, I love, I love the end. And I love that. I love that Greta Gerwig made that the end. She did it. She did Louisa justice. She did. what she did. What Louisa couldn't do, she decided to do with the book. Because that's the whole thing. It's like, that's what Louisa wanted to do. She wanted the Greta Gerwig ending of like, yeah, sure. Maybe she married Professor Bear. Whatever. That's not the point. The point is the book. The book, her writing, and, like, I love that, like, she kind of made it ambiguous, but she also made a very clear point of, like, that's where Joe was headed to being a published author. And, yeah, I don't know. That's... (laughs) It's so... It literally is so good, and I think you did Joe March so much justice. I hope so. It's so hard because it's, like, the book is really written up of, like, kind of these, like, little short stories that, like, kind of all blend together, and... It's like, do I really need to go into like X, Y, Z? No, but I need to go into the relationships. Right, because and that's, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. That's what Little Women is about. I mean, it's literally about the relationships between these young women becoming adults, mm-hmm. which is what's so incredible. Oh, it's so great and uh, timeless. And are you ready to do this together? I'm ready. So we are going to talk about these two women together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Wow. Uh, there's so much going on here. There really is. And I was thinking a lot about how both of these characters were determined from a very young age about what they wanted to do with their life. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like Mary C. Cole, like saw her mom and was like, I am going to like help people. I am going to be a nurse. I am going to be a caregiver. And we obviously meet Joe when she's just 15, but she's like, I want to be a writer. Like that is her clear goal. From the very beginning. And I think a lot of times like young women do know what they want and then society trains them into what it means to be a woman and yeah. you slowly change your mind. That's exactly because the but be- Joe like, and Mary did not do that. No, they didn't. But that's the beauty of like Joe's story is like because it's fictional. Mm-hmm. You get to see the other turnouts. Mm-hmm. You get to see Meg who did 
marry and like gave up her dream and she's mm-hmm. like no it's fine that i like didn't become an actress like the chances are slim <laughs> right and then you have amy who really did pursue it but then you know it was like okay but that's not really what i'm doing anymore and like you have mary seacole and joe who like really fucking did it you know and they accomplished what they set out to do and they're both i mean the thing that they're accomplishing in in short is really serving people yeah because whether joe was opening a school or writing her book her ideas are serving people and that's what mary was doing mary both wrote her autobiography and opened hospitals we keep calling them hotels but she was really servicing people and they both did that yeah well and again i think that she kind of had to call them hotels to like make them acceptable for what she was doing to mm-hmm. kind of skirt around the rules and I think that Joe did that Joe was like I don't really want to be writing these gothic horror stories but I want to be making my own like living writing and I want to provide for my family so like that's what I'm going to do it's kind of like doing what you want to do which is writing and caretaking but doing it in a way that skirts around the laws that are trying to prohibit you from doing so. And I love that there's this true and this fictional story that both dealt with war and sickness and death and illness and just how do you as a human keep going? How does a family keep going? How does a doctor keep going when they're constantly losing people? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I love that you said like, you know, Mary said at some point, like, like, I I feel like there is like this kind of thing of like, God, like people are not letting me do the things that I need to do or want to do because I'm not white. And that's kind of like the sentiment, like, God, if I was white, I could do more. And Joe is saying the whole book, like if I was a boy, I could be doing more. Oh, yeah. And just this struggle of like, I live in a time period where because I was born a certain way, I cannot accomplish the things that. I am capable of because both of these women know that they are capable of it. You know, I think that it's really inspiring that Mary Sicole wasn't like, you know what? I keep getting rejected from these nursing programs, whatever these hospitals, these assignments. Maybe it's because I'm not a good nurse. She never thought that like Joe thought that a little bit. I think when Friedrich kind of, bashed the writing well i think it's because you get to see doubt in fictional characters because you can see in their head yeah and you can't do that with a human yeah it's so true and like maybe mary did feel kind of doubt but she was like but she had such a strong resilience and i think so did joe that she's like no 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 like i got it i got this i totally got this i loved two quotes that you brought up about amy that the world is hard on ambitious girls and i want to be great or nothing because I thought that that described Mary and Florence Nightingale. Absolutely. Like, the world is hard on ambitious girls is what Mary's saying. Like, I want to do this and this is what I need to do. And then Florence Nightingale is like, I'm great or nothing. Yeah. Like, I am the ambitious girl. So, like, back down from me. Yeah. No, absolutely. And also, like, the world is hard on ambitious girls because not only are you pitted against the entire world, but you're also pitted against every other woman. And it's like they try and make these con- like these conflicts out of nothing, you mm. know. And it's like I I kind of thought about like Florence Nightingale and Mary as like Joe and Amy about like they have similar mindsets and similar goals in life. They both want to be great or nothing, but 
because they are actually so similar they are constantly pitted against each other and they're made to be mortal enemies but like in the end of both fucking stories even though one is fictional and one is not joe and amy come together and like no we're mature women and like that's totally fine that you married laurie like you guys are such a good pair we're friends you are not you are lovers and like mary and florence are the same thing they're like i I know that people want us to be like mortal enemies but like i understand why you're doing what you're doing and you understand like i think florence was a little bit of a jerk and like she doesn't deserve those markups but like you know it's like at the end of the day though like they weren't inhibiting it like right you know, like, I mean, I think I think Florence, it, it's funny because you could write her on almost any character. But I uh, some of me wants to write her on Meg of like, I did it the right way. Yeah, I did what I was supposed mm-hmm. to do. I'm following procedure. Like, yeah, get in, get in line, Joe. Yeah. Get in line. Yeah. Do what the fuck you're supposed to do because you're not doing it. Yeah. No, that's so true. And it can be frustrating to girls. Like we said that Meg was jealous like throughout her life because it can be frustrating when you're doing what society tells you to do yeah. and you feel like you're doing it well. And then you see people stepping out of the bounds and you're like, wait, I didn't know that was an option. Yeah. No, I mean, there's like there's this whole portion of the book where like Meg as a married woman is like keeping separate finance books from her husband because she's like I don't want her to know that I bought all these yards of fabric because it was so wasteful but I was just jealous and I was mad because I couldn't I knew I couldn't buy it but I wanted to yeah and like she like ends up having like come clean to him and he's like no it's totally like we'll get through this you know but it's like all women are different and you said at one point that Mary C. Cole was treating every patient like, no, you are you, your unique and own person and you are different and you require different care than these other patients. Mm. And I'm like, that's what Louisa May Alcott did with her characters. She's like, Joe, Beth, Amy, and Meg are all different characters who need different things. For sure. And I just... I think that those are two lessons that we need to learn Mm -hmm. is that there's no one solution fits all. I think we're learning this with like the fucking, even like the COVID vaccine. It's like, I want it. (laughs) I would love to fucking get this vaccine, but like there's some people who like have strong allergic reactions and it like probably won't be a good thing for them, you know, but like we have to treat everyone like, they matter enough to like have different care right you know and i you know what i think we should do i think that we should do <laughs> florence nightingale and louisa <gasps> may alcott together oh my but God. we should switch people oh, i do florence nightingale and you do louisa i would mm-hmm. love that i oh think my that'd gosh, be fun. that would be so perfect <sighs> that's um, it <laughs> that's i think it. i think this is a i think it's a great comparison i think these are great women i think they you know, fictional or non-fictional, their stories are just like so resilient through time and we're so lucky to have them. No, absolutely. And in the end, I think it's so interesting because we know so much about Mary C. Cole because she was able to write her own autobiography and she's like, this is what fucking happened to me. Yeah. And in Here's a way, Louisa May Alcott didn't really get to, she wrote herself into a fictional character that is mm-hmm. beloved through all time and she didn't really have control over who Joe was because of publishers and readers and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that they both kind of wrote themselves with such different results. Yeah. 
I don't know. I, I think agree. it's really interesting. It is cool. <laughs> Are you ready to toast these women? I am ready to toast. All right, let's do it. All right, Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I actually want to give a shout out to like the Florence Nightingales of the world. Mm-hmm. I just think it takes a lot of self-confidence to like do your best to not be intimidated. And I'm not saying Florence Nightingale did it well. I'm yeah. saying that we can do it better. Yeah. I think it takes a lot of confidence to not be intimidated by other strong, successful women. But the that's because the world hasn't given us wiggle room to be more than one successful woman in one place. Yeah. So I think that we can just do it better. And yeah. I think that we should do it better. So cheers Ugh. to you if you're feeling je- jealous or guilty because you shouldn't and you're, somebody else's success doesn't take away from you. Mm. I love it. So cheers to those, cheers. those ladies. <sighs> Who are you thinking about? So it's funny. Mine, I feel like mine really pairs well with that. Um, I am toasting though women who are angry nearly every day. Um, hi, hi. <laughs> I, I struggle with anger on a really intense level, and it's something that I fucking hate about myself, and I wish it didn't happen. I'm mad at my downstairs neighbor from six years ago (laughs) for fucking snubbing me and like you know it's like this thing of like my anger I I work hard to control it but like it is something so pronounced in my life and I I just want to toast women who experience that because I feel like the world tells women that they shouldn't be angry because it makes you bitchy. It makes you bitchy. Um, and I want to toast angry women because you, we have a lot to be angry about. And I just, I love to have characters like Marmy and Joe and Amy and probably Louisa who struggle with it and and work on it and also admit to it because I also think that sometimes we need to admit to being really fucking mad. Yo, and fucking cheers to all of Louisa's sisters. Oh my God, seriously. <laughs> so their lives written in pages. Seriously, so cheers, cheers. to them. Mm. All right, Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week that we can turn our listeners towards if they're looking for something new this is so dumb but okay like two months ago my younger daughter became a vegetarian Mm. and it was like a new journey for me because it's like I I cook obviously things that don't involve meat but Mm -hmm. I had not explored very much for myself like the plant-based world yeah because I hadn't had to do any like beyond meat things Mm -hmm. it's so fucking easy oh yeah to serve a vegetarian vegetarian, like (laughs) now versus like 20 years ago ago. yeah (laughs) it's incredible and I just like I encourage everybody to like maybe pick one meal a week where instead of actual meat you pick like plant-based meat or like just some other protein because I just it's opened like a new door for all of us I'm like hey this is something else that we can choose and it's not like I don't have to have xyz at dinner for it yeah. to be dinner yeah well it's so funny because i feel like when i first started cooking for myself i was dating and living with a vegan yeah <laughs> so when i first started to cook i didn't cook meat so yeah. like i feel like i was at this other position of like i was like oh my god i have to start cooking meat oh like i i can't touch it like i hate touching chicken i make yeah. casey <laughs> and like all these things but like yeah it's like it's really it's so much easier now. And I like, I obviously started cooking 
as a married woman in a very opposite like world where like, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, in your family and my family, we were raised like if there's not meat at a meal, it's right. Not it's a meal. not a meal. It's not a yeah. meal. You have to have a meat. And it was like I didn't, you know, until three to five years ago, realize, OK, I can just eat a meal without meat. And now this plant based thing. Is yeah. Just, oh, <laughs> I feel like a, a child. <laughs> I'm like I'm a little infant baby trying to figure out how to cook. Um, but it's really nice. And I just encourage people who haven't tried it to try it because it seems intimidating. But all the bags in the store are green. So, you know, what's vegetables. Perfect. <laughs> Okay, what do you have to promo? I am obviously going to promote that everyone watch Greta Gerwig's Little Women. <laughs> it is source so material, good. Source material, source material. I, I watched it by myself because <laughs> fiance had a 24-hour stomach bug, so he was incapacitated. Maybe, maybe I'll break the rules tomorrow with my girls. I, it maybe, was so good. Maybe we'll watch it, and that'll encourage them to read it. I think it, it might. It doesn't matter. Okay, well, for some reason, the end of this episode got completely cut off. So, you know from here, Katie finished her recommendation. We said, we love you. Find us everywhere. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. Wherever you can find us. And well-behaved women rarely do something funky. I don't know what I said on the original episode, but they rarely make history. But now here's for the good thing. We love you. Bye. But our traditional Patreon extra also got cut. So if you're on our Patreon, I'm about to record with my two daughters a new conversation instead of the one that got cut with Katie. And you can go find that. Girls, say bye to everybody and then we'll keep talking on Patreon. Bye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye